So now to the reading, which is from Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three chief, chief ministers over them, one of whom is Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the chief ministers and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the chief ministers and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption within, in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Well, may I begin by uh, thanking you for the privilege of being able to share again in this uh, forum. And I'm very grateful to Andy for his prayers for my throat in the light of what we've just learned about Sean. Uh, my problems pale into insignificance, but I have what my uh, dear uh, departed grandma used to call a funny throat. <clears throat> in the early hours of Monday, the 26th of August, 1912, it began raining heavily across the city of Norwich and surrounding countryside. In less than 24 hours, over eight inches had fallen, and as the water poured off the land, the river banks were breached, causing mass flooding across the city. Over 40 bridges were destroyed, roads and railways became impassable, streets were submerged, shops were swamped, homes were engulfed, the harvest was lost, people perished, and thousands more were left homeless as the floodwaters swept through the region. Now, unsurprisingly, though the technology was still in its infancy, numerous photographs were taken at the time. More surprisingly, at least to my way of thinking, some were subsequently issued as picture postcards, and this is one of them. You may be looking at a larger images on your screen. It's an image taken in Hardy Road um, on the following day, less than two miles uh, from this church. It shows the inundated factory of Lawrence and Scotts down by the River Wensum, whose waters rose 16 feet above their normal level. Now, ironically, this is the same engineering company that supplied the motors which once powered the ventilation system on a ship called the Titanic which tragically also found itself flooded just five months previously and whose ill-fated maiden voyage it was itself captured for posterity on picture postcards. Traditionally, of course, postcards normally sport images of picturesque scenery, sandy beaches, soaring mountains, or notable landmarks such as castles or cathedrals, but postcards, scenes of tragedy, trauma, terrible events, devastating floods or shipwrecked vessels and the like, surely seem to offer very strange subject matter for the postcard treatment. But from an historical perspective, clearly not, uh, for which I have the proof in my hands. 
But today we focus on a literary version of that kind of disturbing and disquieting postcard, a copy of which I also now have in my hand, for it invites us to consider another historical snapshot of suffering, the traumatic image of a man thrown into a den of lions. Now you will know, I'm sure that this is the fourth in our current uh, set of studies conceived by Alan Barnes, who entitled the series Postcards from the Exile. Indeed, I did inquire of Alan if he chose this title in the hope that those invited, like me, to share commentary on them would keep their messages brief, uh, since the space to share any kind of personal remarks is particularly limited on most postcards. Um, you may be disappointed to learn that Alan said that nothing was further from his mind. Though I do want to return to this aspect of uh, postcard messages before we've done. So let's look at the scene we have before us today. It's a very famous image, Daniel in the lion's den. Even in these post-Christendom days, when the Bible barely features in many lives, and its contents are increasingly literally a closed book, this story has survived in the folk memory of millions. And colloquially, the phrase, being thrown to the lions, remains in popular vernacular. Indeed, not too many months ago, quoting the CEO of a major company on the potential financial impact of Brexit, one national newspaper carried the headline in its business section, City of London, thrown to the lions. Of course, this biblical story was, and is no doubt, an essential topic on our children's Sunday school curriculum, though naturally the bit where those conspiratorial and conniving politicians try to engineer Daniel's demise get eaten alive by the same ravenous beasts who turned up their noses at dining on Daniel, along with their wives and children, is predictably omitted from the kiddies' colouring book versions of this scriptural classic. It isn't a pretty picture postcard. And undoubtedly, it's an image to which the proverbial quip attached to countless postcard messages down the years seems singularly inappropriate. Wish you were here. So what is this sensational scriptural snapshot from the biblical book of Daniel all about? Well, if I were to offer you a single sentence summary suitable for the blank space next to the recipient's address box on the reverse of this image, it might read, see the difference a beleaguered but faithful believer can make even on a scornful, cynical and sinful society when committed to the purposes and convinced of the promises of the sovereign Lord. Now, it may not be too pithy, but if brevity is the soul of wit, as Shakespeare once claimed, then this postcard-sized precy of the message confronting us today is as concise as I can conjure by my wit. But if you'll allow me to elaborate, and Alan says I can, blame him, we can delve deeper into these scriptures to discover within this summary three of the lessons contained here for believers in every generation, including our own. Though the story of our lives 
and the witness we are called to make is being played out two and a half millennia later than the historical context in which our biblical author sets these remarkable events in the life of this Jewish exile. And yet as followers of Jesus today, like Daniel in his day, we find ourselves as members of a minority community confronted by a secular society, a materialistic culture that disputes and disparages and increasingly derides and denigrates our religious convictions. How do we live authentically as Christians? How do we maintain our bona fides as believers living in Babylon? Well, Daniel's name in Hebrew means God is my judge. And in the light of that little detail, how worthy of note becomes his assertion that we'll read a little bit later on in verse 22 at the climax of this gripping story. When he said, I was found innocent in his sight. If the one we honor as Lord is ultimately the God who adjudicates our case and settles our sentence based on his righteous judgment, then we better pay attention to this section of scripture because it speaks about such things. Daniel's story may belong to a place three and a half thousand miles away and tell of a time two and a half thousand years ago but it brings us lessons having an up-to-the-minute relevance and brings to us guidance with deeply contemporary significance about how to live as an exile in a world that wants to squeeze us into a mold of its own making, denying or at least defying the God who alone has the right to rule and to judge us all. So let's consider together what this telling tale has to say about three things, the integrity of our life, the challenge of our faith, and the assurance of our hope. Here's the first, the integrity of our life. As we open our Bibles at Daniel chapter 6, our imaginations must conjure the figure of an elderly gentleman, an octogenarian no less. Now, years before, he had been the victim of Nebuchadnezzar's policy of ethnic cleansing, a once fresh-faced youth who had been abducted from his home in Israel by invading Babylonian troops, along with many of his teenage companions like Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But now he's grown, like me, long in the tooth. He's well into his 80s. But the king of kings never superannuates his subjects he can make us useful, even in our dotage, as those of us sporting more grey hairs on our heads and possibly fewer grey cells in our heads than once was the case. This is a particular note where there's life, there's mission and ministry. Think of the impact a Bramwell Booth or a Corrie ten Boom or a Billy Graham was still making well into their 80s. So, on the last day of the reign of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, whose regal predecessors Daniel had served with distinction, this pensioner gets dragged out of retirement for what he must have thought was his final curtain call 
seeing as he correctly interpreted the writing on the wall and thus predicted the imminent fall of the capital, Babylon, and with it Belshazzar's termination with extreme prejudice, uh, to use a modern euphemism for execution. And yet now the victorious new incumbent to the throne, Darius the Mede, whose besieging armies had engineered a regime change, desiring this uh, to usher in a new administration that offered a measure of continuity, despite his radical takeover of the top job, did not delay in discovering the quality of Daniel's character. A man, as Darius was swiftly informed, who had previously proved his worth as a trusted advisor and wise counsellor to kings, and had played such a prominent and effective role in former governments. Daniel's reputation went before him. The text tells us here, if you look, that he was someone with exceptional qualities. Though the original Aramaic here describes him as having ruach yatirah, an extraordinary ruach spirit. He was someone whose own spirit undoubtedly filled by God's Holy Spirit, Ruach HaKodesh, resulted in qualities of integrity and decency and reliability. Verse 4 tells us he was trustworthy. He was neither corrupt nor negligent. What a testimony to godly character. And of course it begs the question as to what reputation we have among our workplace colleagues when we get back in among them, perhaps, for some, or within the community or neighbors in neighborhoods of which we're a part. The Apostle Paul, writing to a young pastor called Titus, encouraged him to model and to share the very practical advice uh, to the church in his care, in which we read, in everything set them an example by doing what is good. Show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvations to all peoples. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. In this context, we should also note how Daniel's character contrasted with that of some others around him, those whose own overarching concerns seem to be about um, personal profit or material gain or selfish benefit, like Darius whose decisions were taken so that the king might not suffer loss, we read in verse 2. But he wasn't alone in this. Daniel's, let's call them colleagues, 
were also ready to drive forward their personal agendas, no matter who suffered loss as a consequence of their pretentious pride or their ambitious plots or their self-important arrogance or their jealous resentments. The calling of believers in every age, whether living in the 6th century BC or the 21st century AD, is to live counterculturally. Indeed, the one we call Lord has told us unequivocally, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Though interestingly, uh, Jesus, whose mother tongue was also Aramaic, the language in which this particular section of the, the book of Daniel is written, used the word mamonos here. It's translated money. But which is the term that really requires a, an entire phrase to translate it? Uh, namely, the treasure in which a person puts their trust. Now that might well mean money or material wealth, but it can include the desire for status or for success or admiration or advantage, the pursuit of power or prestige. Jesus is really speaking about any focus of human concern that is at its heart selfish and greedy and competes with God's right to be Lord of our lives, anything which conflicts with the kingly rule of Christ. And of course, Luke also records some words of Jesus speaking to his followers on another occasion when he said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Daniel's priorities were clearly not those that seemed to drive many of his contemporaries. And it made him distinctive in a world where looking after number one was the number one priority. But this is the calling for all who believe in and who seek to follow the God Daniel served, who is the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. Of course, in our own day, there are others who repudiate the mindset, which is all about grabbing and getting, manifested often here in the West in their protest against the greedy affluence of our society, which seems to enrich itself at the expense of the poor, either by plundering the planet or by the exploitation of developing nations, or by exploiting ethnic minorities, or all of these at once and disillusioned many people, especially among the young, have come to despise the superficiality of consumerism and materialism and elitism. Indeed, to a degree, the Christian church ought to find in this search for a cultural alternative one of the most hopeful signs of the times. Recognizing in it the activity of the Holy Spirit who is as much the divine disturber as comforter. And yet the first port of call in which this ship of disenchanted souls should find harbour is the very one that many of these folk ignore, namely the church. For too often what they see among us, whether individually or collectively, isn't a counterculture, but conformism, 
not a transformational community which embodies and exemplifies their ideals and hopes, but which is yet simply another version of the outmoded society they've rejected and renounced. And no statement should be more hurtful to us, more condemnatory of us, than the dismissive claim, but we don't see that you're any different from anybody else. You know, the central subject of this scripture, from the first page to the last, is God's intention to call out a people for himself, women and men who would be holy. The word simply means different. Different in outlook and attitude, different in action and in behavior, reflecting the vocation to be in the world, but not of the world. Indeed, in the Old Testament, the fundamental reason why first Israel, and then 150 years later, Judah, found themselves in exile, was because they followed the practices of the nations. And in the New Testament, Jesus told his followers that they were not to take their cue from those around them, but from him. And arguably the key challenge of what we call the Sermon on the Mount is summed up in Christ's command. Do not be like them. Our character and calling is to be distinct, to be different, to shine like lights in the prevailing darkness. Our righteousness should exceed that of the righteousness, the self-righteousness of the Pharisees, the superficially religious both in ethical behavior and in spiritual devotion. While our love is to be greater, our ambitions nobler than that of our unbelieving neighbors. The followers of Jesus are to be different, different from both the nominal churchianity of some and the secular morality of others. Like Daniel, we do find ourselves living in Babylon, a society that has little time for the God we serve as Lord. A place where the priorities that govern our day-to-day -day life are frequently at odds with those motivating others, but to which and to whom we must bear witness. Not in our own strength, but in the power of the one who commands us, his spirit controlling our spirits. We must live in Babylon. We engage with Babylon but owning the lordship of the one who reminds us daily that Babylon's world is not ours. And our witness in it must point to him, to his holiness, his grace, his goodness, by the integrity of our life. Alan told us at the beginning of this series how the prophet Jeremiah gave this command from God to Daniel and his fellow exiles. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. And this is what Daniel did, exercising his gifts for the good of the nation and the benefit of each of his earthly masters, no matter which ruler ran the show, whether it was Nebuchadnezzar or Belshazzar or now Darius. He chose to do what was right, as far as obedience to them did not compromise the greater allegiance required by his submission to the king of kings. So he didn't slack off, he didn't cook the books, he didn't skim off the top, he didn't accept bribes, he cut no corners. He never stooped to underhand means to feather his own nest. Indeed, it might almost have been Daniel, whom the Apostle Paul had in mind when he wrote this to the followers of Jesus in Colossae. Obey your earthly masters in everything, 
and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. But don't expect such a life to be problem-free. Living counterculturally invariably comes at a cost. Thank you. The next reading comes from Daniel, chapter 6, verses 6 to 18. Hopefully that will come up on the screen. So these chief ministers and satraps went as a group to the king and said, May King Darius live forever. The royal ministers, prefects, satraps, advisers and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and force the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room, where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. These men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sunset to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the kings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. So here we have uh, a second lesson to be found in this tale told of Daniel, the challenge of our faith, the challenge of our faith. And this in two respects, for such a faith will not only be a challenge for believers to adopt, but a challenge for unbelievers to accept. Daniel, we, we, we discover, lived a life that was above reproach, but what did he get for it? Well, to be sure, sometimes he was appreciated, he got promoted, but it also put him in the firing line. 
He was despised. He was plotted against. His honor and his loyalty was impugned, and he knew it. Faithfulness demands courage, indeed fortitude. And this has been the challenge of Daniel's entire life. It had been true in his youth, and it remains so in the closing years of his life. Indeed, I'm reminded of, of Eugene Peterson's definition of biblical discipleship, which he encapsulated in the title of one of his books on my shelves. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Daniel's commitment carried him through eight decades and more. Lessons he'd learned, often the hard way, concerning the trustworthiness and faithfulness of God, which he had experienced for himself firsthand and sometimes seen evidence secondhand in the witness of his believing friends, had grown deep roots in his life. His faith was not in faith, but in the faithfulness of the God who rewards faith. And thus, despite the challenge of living a God-honoring life in the society that misunderstood and misrepresented his godly choices, objected to and in certain quarters utterly rejected his faith, Daniel remained faithful in a lifestyle that reflected the character of the God he served. Recall what Paul told the Thessalonian church, as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what is good. And yet in all this, his steadfast dedication to the duties and responsibilities he believed he owed to the country and the society in which he lived and worked, Daniel never failed to let it be known to all around him that any exceptional qualities he exhibited in his life didn't derive from the beliefs or the morality or the cultural mindset of the city and society in which he was exiled but rather from the divine inspiration and spiritual motivation symbolized in a city he could not see, except with the eye of faith. And everything it had been built to signify to its citizens of their service to God, Jerusalem. His habit of daily prayer, which he hid from no one, demonstrated to all who knew him where he believed truth was to be found and where he was convinced all must look for purpose and meaning and value and saving grace. The orientation of his life was epitomized in those windows that he opened to face Jerusalem three times a day. And in both thanksgiving and intercession, he spoke to the one to whom praise and prayer belonged and under whose sovereign authority he believed the future was governed. Daniel knew that his destiny and that of his nation and indeed all peoples, whether Jew or Gentile, was not ultimately determined by the builders of Babylon or any earthly empire, past, present or future but lay in the control of the God whose saving purposes had already led enslaved exiles out of the land of slavery in Egypt and given them a country and a capital that they might be a light to the nations. For Daniel, Jerusalem and all that it represented was the, the kind of magnetic North Pole to which the compass of his faith was drawn inexorably. And the purpose of his petitions, like the alignment of his life, 
bore testimony to his longing that God would restore and rebuild that which his people's faithlessness and disobedience had for a season brought to ruin and was currently in disrepair. Daniel daily demonstrated by the prayers uttered on his knees and the witness offered by his life that the Lord, in his mercy and grace, would re-establish his people in their mission and to their ministry as ambassadors of a kingdom that would outlast the years. And though the writer of Hebrews was speaking specifically of Abraham, when he described him as one who was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God, clearly Daniel, in his day, manifested the same faith that God's future included the establishment of a new Jerusalem. But how challenging to live in and to live out this faith when decade after decade passes and this prayer seems to go unanswered. And yet Daniel and others like him, though in exile, were praying fervently and living faithfully in the light of that future expectation. But the challenge of faith exists not merely for those who embrace it, but for those who refute it. Thus it was precisely for Daniel's persistent loyalty to the God of Abraham and his consistent refusal to deny his faith or to stop practicing it openly, given that it represented an implicit claim that the truth that he practiced and the salvation he believed in did not lie in the gift of Babylon to bestow, but that made some people, especially in positions of power and influence, to oppose him. Indeed, they hated him, or at least what he stood for. They may have been suspicious of him because he was a foreigner, a stranger. They referred to him before Darius as Daniel, who is the, one of the exiles from Judah. Smacks of anti-Semitism, doesn't it? Or at least cultural bigotry. They may have resented him because they were jealous of his exceptional qualities, which presumably put their own into shade or more likely because his probity thwarted their less scrupulous methods of advancement, their more dubious schemes for success. But undoubtedly, what really stuck in the craw was his religion, what they call in these verses the law of his God, which was an affront to their own convictions and persuasions and opinions. This is something they felt they could not allow to have further currency in their culture if they had any means at their disposal to affect it. Daniel's transgression in their eyes was the challenge of his faith, which he couldn't avoid giving offense because it witnessed to the conviction that God gets the last word. Not any man or woman, no matter how high or exalted, that his revealed truth must constrain both what Daniel believes and how he behaves. And thus exclusivity must inevitably challenge every other system that demands authority over it, or even simply complementarity with it. It is a faith that must appear utterly intolerant of the possibility that anything or anyone else could claim the same finality or authority over human lives. And when anyone makes similar claims in the world today, they are bound to face the same challenge as Daniel faced. And Jesus too warns his apprentices that if they witnessed to him boldly and faithfully and served him loyally, 
they would never be able to give, uh, avoid giving the same offense. If the world hates you, remember it hated me first. For they would have to proclaim that Jesus alone was the good shepherd, that all other claimants were thieves and robbers, that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, that uniquely he is the savior of the world, that he alone is the great physician who holds the sole cure to the sickness that imperils humanity. But if true Christianity causes offense, it does so only to false human pride and to entrenched human wrongdoing. So we ought not to be surprised if the motives and the means used against Daniel, which stank of duplicity and dishonesty and irrationality and sometimes illegality, still employed today. In our own generation, the Christian gospel itself and the humanity and the teaching of Jesus himself and the best of traditional values that civilization have derived from him are sometimes tragically and perversely distorted in order to be shown despicable and thus reasonably defied and legitimately maligned. Of course, the church must be willing to listen to the criticisms of our times, to be open to the sometimes desperate and sincere questioning and doubts of others. And what's more, to be as repentant of our past failures and sins as the Jews learned to be in their exile. But we also have to be aware that human nature hasn't changed too much since the times of the Babylonian captivity, nor has the challenge of faith lessened, either for the Daniels of our day or to those who are offended by them. Now, we haven't time to unpack the details of the satraps, cynical manipulation of the inviolability of the new regimes. All are equal under the law, which superficially must have seemed so enlightened, given the autocratic nature of the previous administration. But we shouldn't be surprised to see that opposition to the truth that God's people are called to represent can flourish and work just as effectively under the guise of law and order, whether of the Medes and Persians or of their 21st century counterpart, as can be done under the cloak of permissiveness or broad-mindedness, or supposed liberty. The enemies of God are as happy to wear a conservative mask as to raise a revolutionary flag. And yet, despite the serious misgivings of the king, Darius, not least at the prospect of losing one of his most trustworthy subjects and committed servants of the crown, especially given his realization that he'd been played for a fool, duped by dishonest politicians, and despite his urgent endeavors to undo what he realized would be a serious miscarriage of justice, the king capitulates and Daniel is sacrificed on the altar of the king's pride and conceit. Though it is a bitter sweet irony that the king who banned prayer offered prayer on Daniel's behalf. May your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Daniel is about to be punished for defying a decree by which prayer is utterly outlawed. But the last words he hears before he's pitched into that stone-sealed pit with only lions for company are the words of the king breaking his own law.
though arguably this was simply the latest demonstration to Daniel that the God he had served all his long life was greater than the strategy of aggressive antagonists or the conspiracies of belligerent assailants. The attractive nature of Daniel's own faith has, it seems, ignited something in the heart of a man who should have been the most outraged by this subject's insistence that in this area, as in all areas, God gets to call the shots. And so Daniel, so rather Darius, is drawn to pray to a deity to whom he acknowledges himself, all but a stranger, but whose worthy nature, whose saving character, he has dimly grasped, both in Daniel's unquestionable integrity of life and Daniel's uncompromising devotion to God. up the story continuing in Daniel 6 at verse 19. At the first light of dawn the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel servant of the living God has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered may the king live forever my God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in, ev that in every part of my kingdom people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the, during the reign of King of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Thank you, Andy. The integrity of our life, the character and challenge of our faith, the assurance of our hope. Intriguingly, the biblical text provides almost no information on how Daniel passed the worst night of his life, but it does go into significant detail of how Darius, the king, the chap who was supposed to be in charge in Babylon, sat on tenterhooks the whole time. He was so agitated and anxious, so stressed and distressed. He didn't eat, he wouldn't be entertained, and he couldn't sleep. To quote Shakespeare again, Uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. 
And so a famished, frustrated, and fearful Darius dashes at dawn to the den. Has Daniel's God answered his half-baked prayer? When he had the seal and the stone removed, he shouted into the gloom of what reason and logic must assume was now but a grisly grave, but at which faltering faith and hesitant hope dared to inquire of a miracle. Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Oh, silly, silly Darius. Of course he has. Didn't Darius realize that Daniel and his friends had been rescued before, more than once, by the miraculous intervention of their gracious and glorious God, their omnipotent and almighty Lord? Clearly, Darius hadn't read the earlier chapters of the book of Daniel. And that wondrous incident about the kosher food and that fabulous episode about the fiery furnace. But we have. In fact, we probably even read the ending of this story before. And so the dramatic, divinely orchestrated conclusion in which Daniel escapes the jaws of death comes as no surprise to us. We know the authority and supremacy of God to rescue and to save. We have heard before that the power of men and women, is contingent on the approval of God, who truly holds the lives of all in his hands. God has the last word. No one backs him into a corner. No one can strong-arm the Almighty. Our God reigns. And Darius himself is driven to conclude in that amazing statement. There is nothing better than a royal endorsement, is there? Ask anyone in the advertising business by royal appointment. So yes, some will discover through daring disciples like Daniel or through faithful apprentices of Jesus that our God reigns. But we live in an age of cynicism that rejects the notion of truth. We are officially post-truth as well as post-Christendom. And politicians and pundits will tell us daily, truth is what we tell you it is. Do not believe your lying eyes. And our colleagues and our neighbours, even our friends and family, will tell us that they're living out a philosophy of life that is true for them. As if reality can be bent by individual personal belief and veracity can be shaped to human subjective opinion. But truth is a stubborn thing. And Daniel insists the truth is we neither created nor control the world. And that the God who stands behind this fact and who is every bit as real governs and guides. And we can see his hand in the at work in the lives of those who acknowledge his right to rule. Most perfectly, of course, in the life of one whose own life bears remarkable similarities to that of Daniel, in the witness of one who was also an exile from his true home, who though his exceptional God-honoring life, empowered by the Holy Spirit, was utterly impeccable, always seeking the good of others, also found himself conspired against and unjustly condemned to death by a ruler who knew he was innocent, a man who faced death alone, his body consigned to a hole in the ground, sealed by a stone. And his enemies assumed that was the end of him. 
But then, early one morning, as dawn broke, the stone was rolled away and he was seen alive. God was glorified and his kingly rule proclaimed. But be careful what we see here in Daniel. For this is indeed a postcard. It is a snapshot in time. It may seem as if Daniel lived a charmed life because every time we look at him, God is doing something miraculous, which he did. But all of this in the context of a life and against the backdrop of a time that was deeply challenging, a life that was challenged by suffering and perplexity and sometimes seeming to give the lie to the claim, our God reigns. Don't forget that Daniel has been torn from his family and friends, ripped from his home and homeland. His own city lay besieged, lost to invaders. He'd been forced to work for proud, capricious rulers who were unpredictable and volatile. The truth is Daniel was surrounded by lions before ever he got tipped into the pit and ditched into the den. Well, he had a few friends. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But where are they now? The man spoken of in this chapter had spent 70 years in exile. Think of that. This incarceration, among many who would gladly see the back of him, had been a lifetime's struggle. And yes, there'd been moments of victory and triumph, but moments of mortal peril too. But living in exile is, it seems, even for the Daniels of this world, a long, hard slog, a long obedience in the same direction. And yet through it all, he faced it with the assurance of hope, strengthened by the enabling of God's spirit, nurtured by his devotion to God's will, inspired by the promises of God's word. This postcard from Daniel both the picture and the message was and is delivered to people who knew that life was not fair, that bullies often get to run the show, that national fortunes change, and the world is a hostile place, especially if you live counterculturally. But God is faithful, God is powerful, God is sovereign. God did not save Daniel from the lion's den. He brought him through the lion's den. You see, in God's book, lions, whether they walk on four legs or two, are subject to his lordship, as is the one described by the apostle Peter as your enemy, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. And those who know this and live in the light of it will hear the assurance of hope in the testimony of an aging Paul, which he gave to future generations of believers through a young man called Timothy and the closing words of what was probably the very last letter he ever wrote. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack 
and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen.